This week on Waxing the Porpoise, G-Baby and the usual suspect Steve are pleased to welcome back once again very special guest and friend of the show, dad of the show, Steve's dad, the Tom Father. Join us as we discuss the Tom Father's time as a Secret Service agent throughout the 1980s, where he was tasked with the protection of Jesse Jackson during his one of two presidential campaigns, the commander-in-chief himself at the time, Ronald Reagan, and other various high-level officials and foreign dignitaries. We'll hear about the reality of being a Secret Service member from the perks, to the day-to-day grind, to the sacrifices that come with the territory, and hear more than a few interesting stories along the way. Pop quiz, hot shot! If the president offered you half a cookie, would you accept it? Dan Marino should die of gonorrhea and rot in hell. Would you like a cookie, son? Let's wax the shadowy porpoise. Chase, don't do that. All right, welcome to Waxing the Porpoise. We are back again on a double nickel, episode 55 this time, and yet again, a very special episode uh, where we have uh, part two of Steve's dad, Tom, the Tom father, has joined us uh, once again to talk about his career. Um, super excited to get into this. We teased last time uh, about his his time in the Secret Service, so uh, this should this should be a fun one. So, um, do you got do you have anything, Steve? Any housekeeping type stuff uh, carryover that you wanted to get out of the way before we get into the the main event? No, nothing I can think of. Okay, sweet. Yeah, we didn't have any new emails or. Uh, anything like that. So yeah, we can just get right into it. Uh, so to introduce ourselves this evening, as always, you have myself, Jim G baby. And what the hell is that smell? <laughs> and of course, to my virtual right, the usual suspect, Steve. Hey man, Miami wise is number one, new show. <laughs> <laughs> Do you What's remember that? Even? No. What's Euro that trip. Uh, I've never seen it. Really? Yeah. Damn, I could have sworn you did. Yeah, they go on this Euro trip and like there's a they get the trip from like a, a really shady like travel agent, so they get dropped off in like Bratislava. And so they they kind of it's a, it's a satire kind of like a parody thing, so they play it up like they just got Miami Miami Vice uh, gotcha. on their cable channels in like 2008. So he's like Miami Vice, number one new show. <laughs> I think I confused you and Luke for that one. Cause that, that was one of those lines that I was, it was sure to always get a chuckle <laughs> along the same lines as wrong kid died Yeah, from Dewey Cox. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay. And then without further ado, uh, once again, we have returning champion, Tom. Get off my plane. How's it going, Tom? Good, good. Good to see you guys. Likewise. Good to have you back. Steve, you want to start us off here on on this uh, journey through the the Secret Service? Yes, I'd be I'd be happy to. Pops, thanks again for coming back. We appreciate having you. Yeah, yeah, always we a good always time. Enjoy, we always enjoy hearing your crazy stories. Um, I think the the first thing I wanted to ask you was if you could give our listeners at home like a quick little history of what the Secret Service actually is, how it started, because it started as a 
an extension of the Department of Treasury, right? Yeah, it was it was under the Department of Treasury up until after 9-11 when they moved it over to Homeland Security. Uh, okay. So oh, wow. It, you know, the original, the original charter, uh, and this is going back to like 1865, I think, um, you know, their original job was to investigate counterfeiting and, um, you know, uh, kind of an odd fact, the, uh, Abraham Lincoln signed the executive orders or signed the authorization, however you'd phrase it, um, creating the United States Secret Service just before he died. And wow. it was one of those crazy, you know, crazy things in history. But yeah, the, ori- the original job of the Secret Service was to investigate counterfeiting because, uh, as I understand it, all the different states and, and uh, banks uh, in the 1860s were printing their own money. So you had a multitude of currencies floating around out there. And it was really easy to counterfeit. And so they needed one law enforcement agency to try to clean up, you know, that problem and uh, until they got a central currency going. And so that was the job of the Secret Service. And then uh, somewhere along the line, it morphed into they kept they kept the counterfeiting investigation, you know, job, but then it morphed into executive protection, which is what you know, most people think of when they when they think of the Secret Service protecting the president and the vice president and all those folks. So it, it was kind of a it's kind of a dual fun and still is, as far as I know, a dual function of executive protection and then some financial crimes, mostly counterfeiting. So I had heard wow. a long time ago. I don't know if you told me if I if I read this somewhere else, but the the transition happened in a, in a really interesting way, from what I understand, where there were secret service agents staking out this bar investigating some counterfeiting. And this was after Lincoln was assassinated and the, these agents overheard a plot to steal Lincoln's body. And Uh. I think, I think they felt like a strange connection to Lincoln because like you said, he was the one who created the secret service. So yeah, they, they took it upon themselves to be like, okay, well we're going to still investigate this counterfeiting operation because I had heard somewhere or I had it in my mind that at that time, a third of all money in circulation was counterfeit. So it was a big, yeah. a big problem. Big problem. Um, wow. So yeah, these, uh, the service agents were like, well, you know, we don't abide by this. So, um, I don't know. You'll have to check that and let me know if I'm wrong or not, because it's, yeah. it's a really cool story that they, they set up like a sting because they were going to kidnap or sorry, steal the president's body and then use it for a ransom or something. Yeah. And then, and then after that, it sort of just stuck. But I, I don't think it they, it officially became their duties until, I don't know, uh, a number of years later. But uh, yeah, I was wondering, that might not even be true. could be something I just heard. But oh, yeah, I thought that was kind of... Yeah, nevertheless, it sounds interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I probably should know the answer to that. but um, And maybe at one time I did, but not uh, anymore. Well, I imagine you, yeah, I imagine you would be the one <laughs> to tell... Because you also said that they, the Secret Service, at least at the time was still responsible for investing, investigating all crimes that were paper related. So it's not just currency forgery, right? It was other paper related. Well, other, yeah, other kind of, uh, to use kind of a blunt term, other currency related stuff. Oh, okay. the, um, 
you know, it was counterfeiting and it was uh, credit card fraud and uh, a few other things, which always seemed to me to be kind of an odd mix of jurisdiction. You know, I, it seems like you would give all the financial crime stuff over to the FBI because, you know, they handle, you know, bank fraud and bank robberies and, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But the Secret Service kept, you know, a carve out of some financial crimes. And the, the only investigations I was involved in during my time there was counterfeiting. That's kind of their big financial crime focus. And then uh, credit card fraud. It seemed like those two were the big ones. And then, but I think they had a, a jurisdiction in some other areas, but those are the two big financial crimes that um, we used to be involved in. I, I seem to remember you were telling me a story where you had to go arrest a guy across state lines, but you guys were all unmarked in civilian clothes and you had to go through oh. some sort of state checkpoint. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's just funny little things that come up like that. Um, and I don't know if you remember John, you know, my buddy at secret service, I'll leave his last name off, but, um, we, I think, I, I don't know if it was, um, I guess it was Reno PD had arrested somebody for passing counterfeit. Um, so we drove up there to get him. Uh, you know, guy was cooperative, you know, we're not driving black and whites, you know, we're driving regular, you know, cars, um, Matter of fact, the, the funny story about the cars we drove is that, you know, the government, mostly DEA, seizes a lot of vehicles in their investigations because if they can find drugs in a car, they take the car, right? And yeah. the drugs and, you know, so they, they had a lot full of all kinds of cars. And so we would go down and just pick out cars and... um <laughs> You know, uh, you know, every now and then they'd get, you know, a real, you know, a, a cool car like a Corvette or something. And of course, you know, everybody wanted to drive that. But, you know, so they were just <laughs> run of the mill cars. So we drove up to Reno. We picked the guy up. You know, we had him in um, a, what's called a transport belt, which is where you cuff him. You cuff him in the front um, because it's really uncomfortable, obviously, to ride with your hands cuffed behind you. But for a long period of time, so you, he's cuffed in the front and then there's a belt and he's cuffed to the belt so he can't get his hands around you because cuffing somebody in the front is just a it's just a terribly dangerous thing to do mm -hmm. um so we had this guy in the back of the car and he's he's got a transport belt on he's got these cuffs on and we're driving back to sacramento gonna book him in the in the jail and we go through that you know fruit and and uh agricultural inspection station <laughs> and I'm driving it. We drive up and I roll the window down and this inspector walks up and he sticks his head in and he looks in the back and here's this guy sitting back there handcuffed. And he looks at me and then he looks at John and he looks at me again and he says, are you transporting any fruit? <laughs> and, and I just looked at him and I said, no. <laughs> and he just waved us on through and John and I, and the guy in the back, we're all laughing our heads off because it was like, apparently he's not concerned that we're kidnapping you. You yeah. know, he didn't, he didn't ask us ID nothing, <laughs> nothing. I mean, we're not, you know, we're wearing jeans and polo shirts and, you know, and just, it was just, oh, the whole man. scene was funny and we drove away, you know, laughing about it. But, 
I think I told the boys that later because it was just such an odd thing. It's like, here this, you know, government official is who's at an inspection station and his job is to ask about fruit, you know, <laughs> and apparently he's unfazed by the fact that we're transporting <laughs> a guy cuffed in the back of the car. So anyway, that was kind of funny. Man. Yeah. Talk about, you know, just towing the party line. Yeah. Fruit, that's it. Like he didn't have any other like logic in him that was saying, are you guys government agents or, uh, you know, yeah. Either that or he just didn't want to know. He just didn't want to know. It's like, move on. That's that's a fair point too. You know, I mean, even back then, you know, you don't know who you're dealing with because maybe he he didn't want to eat a lead salad for asking the wrong kind of question too, you know? So maybe it was actually a smart move. Yeah. Self-preservation. I don't know. It was just, it was just a funny, (laughs) funny thing. No. Yeah, I always but, thought about the guy in the back seat. Like, wow, thanks so much for showing right. the slightest <laughs> yeah. concern that you guys could be kidnapping me, taking me out to the desert to dump me somewhere, and he right. just wants to know if we have any pomegranates in the car. Yeah, <laughs> you don't. The, the yeah. car thing you mentioned reminded me also when you guys would do. Maybe this was when you were a cop. When you would do stakeouts, you would sometimes mm-hmm. use like florist vans that weren't real, but they would have legitimate like DMV entries associated with them. Does that sound familiar? Say that again. We'd use what? So if you guys were doing like recon, you would, you would get a van yeah. that had some fictitious like florist company on the side. But if, if somebody oh, yeah. had a, a, yeah. So, but the point, the reason was why, because if they had somebody who could run the plate at the DMV or something, it would come back to a legitimate Right? Is that right? Yeah, you you can do that. Um, I I I'm, I think we probably had some of those, uh, but yeah, you you know you, you always got to be careful that you know somebody you know like you say working at the DMV might have the boyfriend who's a drug dealer or whatever. So you're very protective of your of your plates and your ID. Um, it's the same thing with law enforcement, and I, they probably still have it today. But if you're if you're active duty law enforcement, you know, state, federal, local, whatever it is, um, you can have your driver's license number and your license plate confidential. So, you know, if a chippy pulls up behind you, pulls you over, whatever, and runs your plate, it's going to come back confidential. And that's going to be a tip off to the, you know, the chippy that he probably just pulled over a cop. Mm-hmm. Um which is a great way to get out of a ticket, by the way. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the purpose of that is so some, you know, the bad guys can't figure out by running your plate or running your driver's license where you live. Wow. And yeah. uh, so all those, so you're right, Stephen, to get back to your point that, you know, the, the plates on the cars you use in surveillance are going to be, well, I don't know. They're they're probably they're not going to come back confidential because that in itself is a tip off. But they're going to come back to fictitious companies. Is that what you were getting at? Yeah, yeah, man. That means yeah, that's, that, that's had to have happened enough for that to be a countermeasure. Which yes, is pretty wild to to think that you have to go that many layers deep to to keep to keep the cover to keep the game up. You know, like, right? I wouldn't have thought. I mean even back in the seventies and seventies and eighties that criminals would be so, uh, on it, you know? To, yeah. Like, that. oh yeah. That's crazy. And it was the same way at secret service. All the plates 
on all of our cars, they were not, they were not government plates. You know, you, you get behind cars that have government plates on them and you know, that's obvious. Ours were just regular California plates, but they all came back to fictitious companies. And I think Stephen, what you may be thinking of is one of the cars I drove for a while, the plate came back to uh, some florist and and it was a phony company, you know, (laughs) which I I always thought was kind of funny because it was, it had a funny name and and the boss of the office is the one who would make up all these fictitious companies. And he had a bit of a sense of humor. It was something like that. It was crazy. You know, It's like uh, De Niro and meet the parents. His cover yes. that he's a florist. He's like, oh, you don't know shit about flowers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brings him that really rare tulip, whatever. Yeah. He's like, yeah. wow, thanks. Great. <laughs> Funny stuff. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that I've always kind of heard is some of these weird rumors about the Secret Service. Like, um, you know, the, the president can never be more than 10 miles away from a trauma center or like they travel with blood or have you heard, have you heard any crazy theories like that, that aren't true or are there any that are true? Like he can never be within 10 miles of whoever, or, you know, you know, Um, I've never heard that. Um, Although, you know, they do have doctors traveling Mm. um, and it wouldn't be unusual to have medical kits, including blood. Mm. And things like that. That's that's not unusual. That's you know that's just good pre-planning. Yeah. Uh, but the president the president can go wherever he wants. You know. He and if, so if you heard that he's going to be ten miles from a trauma center, it, they go wherever they want. And when they're campaigning, think about some of the places they go when they're campaigning, like Iowa. You know. Yeah. Some cornfield in Iowa. You're you're a bit yeah. of a trek <laughs> from a trauma center. <laughs> but um, they, you know, they will always uh, have the routes planned. Of course, you know, if if something bad happens, how do we get to the closest hospital? They may have helicopters on standby. Uh, you know, life flight type helicopters. Um, medical medical people uh, traveling. It's not unusual in a motorcade to see. Uh, in the old days, they used to have ambulances in the motorcade, but they've kind of gotten a little more subtle and they'll have like an SUV, but it'll have paramedics and it'll have blood and it'll have, you know, uh, whatever you need. So, you know, that, that kind of stuff is true, but I can't think of any, you know, crazy rumors I've heard that aren't true. Probably if you think of something crazy, it probably is true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the craziest stuff is probably stuff you haven't heard about. Yeah, exactly. If, if I can interject real quick, I'm curious about like the the timeline. Uh, and is this when you started working for the Secret Service? Is this before you had uh, Steve and his brother, or after, or during? Oh, well, you know that's kind of interesting, actually, because you know it's what what my goal was when I started in law enforcement right right out of college, 1978. Um, my plan, because I had a bachelor's degree in business, my, my plan was to um, go about five years in local law enforcement and then apply to a federal agency and probably FBI. You know, that was kind of kind of my goal. It's like get five years on the street and then, you know, go FBI. Um, and so probably about probably about five years in before. I was married, but before we had kids, 
I actually uh, applied to the FBI and my wife and I went, Stephen's mother, went down to Sacramento and had an interview uh, with a recruiter, um, which was very disappointing. Um, it, interesting guy. He was being brutally honest. And, um, you know, he was he was in the he had been like 17 years in Sacramento and he was getting transferred to like Detroit or something. Oh, man. And so he was at a transition. You know, it's like, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay here? Am I going to stay with the FBI? You know, my kids are in school, you know, and it, and he was just kind of laying out, you know, this is the life. You know, this is this is what happens. And, um, you know, he had some other discouraging things. So we, you know, we drove back and, you know, and I thought, yeah, I don't know. You know, it just it seemed it just didn't seem like a good route to go. Mm-hmm. But but about the same time that was going on, um, I would occasionally work cases with a uh, a field agent, a, a Secret Service agent out of the Sacramento field office who would come up um, and work protective intelligence cases in town. And um, I would hook up with him. Uh, and and typically what happens is if the, if the Secret Service gets information that somebody has made a threat to the president. Usually it's the president, you know, or it could be a vice, could be the vice president, but you know, it's usually somebody's threatening to kill the president. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the agent in that jurisdiction will, will get the case and they'll go up and they'll interview the guy, fingerprint him, photograph him, not arrest him necessarily, but go through all that process um, to identify them and then try to really, identify, is this guy really a threat? Um, but so these agents are going up to towns all over the place where they're not in uniform, you know, uh, so it's, it's dangerous. So they always hook up with a local uniform police officer to go with them. And, um, the guy out of the Sacramento office, I probably worked, I don't know, three or four protective intelligence cases with him. And whenever he would come up into town, he would ask for me. And, and we oh, would, nice. we would get together, you know, he'd say, I got to come up and I got to interview some guy, you know? And so when you work and let's get together and we do it together. And so he was the one who really encouraged me to apply to the secret service. Oh, okay. And, um, so when I applied, I had no kids. Um, and then a short time later, my first son comes along because the process of taking the test. And then going through the background investigation literally takes forever. Uh, I mean, it takes a good year for them to do a background on you, and it's very extensive. Like fully vet you, yeah, I'm sure. It's Completely, involved. you know. <laughs> um, didn't they, didn't and so, they you know, and that like, took time. Go ahead. I was just going to say, didn't they go and interview like childhood neighbors of yours, people you hadn't yeah. seen in decades, like basketball they, coach? Yeah, yeah, they go. Yeah, they go way back, right? Damn. Oh, they dig deep. Yeah, they dig deep. And so there's that. It, that takes a long time. And then uh, and then about the time that was kind of, well, not only do they do that, but then they send you to all kinds of different doctors um, to, you know, for for all these things. And, and I remember one time they sent me to, um, I think it was an allergist. My wife, my wife would remember this. It was a very kind of unique specialty. You know, they sent me to this allergist. But he must have been a pediatric allergist because when I went in his office, it was all full of little chairs and it had, you know, <laughs> elephants ABCs painted around the walls. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> and it was it was just kind of a hoot to be there. Um, but anyway, you get all through that, and then the the government had a hiring freeze on for like a year or so. So anyway, by the time they actually offered me a job, um, I had you know my first son was two plus years old. You know, so wow. it was the different, different dynamic. And, and as a matter of fact, they offered me a job. They offered me the job once. Um, I can't remember what year it was. Uh, and I actually turned them down. And I thought, well, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know if I want to go that route. And, you know, but anyway. Uh, and they, was, they, was this first offer, this was for, you were going for the regional office in the, uh, in Sacramento? Well, you get hired in the Secret Service and then they'll stick you in the closest office where you get hired out of. So yes, I, okay. you know, and so anyway, they offered, you know, they, they offered me a job and I said, no. And, you know, but that, that same agent kept in touch with me and then things changed over the next, you know, six or eight months. And he came back again and said, well, just checking to see if you're still, you know, not interested. And at that point I had changed my mind. And so one thing led to another and we ended up moving down to Sacramento and, and uh, went, you know, I went to work for the Secret Service out of the Sacramento field office. So cool. that's, you know, it's kind of how that came about. But it's it's a long process. I mean, you cannot be in a hurry to get that no. to get a job like that. And I'm curious too: is this like at, during this time? Do they have a regional field office in most big cities or like most capital cities? Say mm-hmm. yes. Across the country, so like Seattle, yes. Sacramento, Las Vegas, yep. uh, Tulsa, yes. like that. Kind or of all thing. of okay. them. Yeah, all of them. They would have what they called, um, uh, I guess they were field offices. And then sometimes they would have little satellite offices. Um, and, you know, we had one of our guys that actually that was assigned to the Sacramento field office, but he worked out of a desk in um, – Stockton at Stockton PD Ugh. and you know, cause that was a, that's a busy area for counterfeiting Yeah, I bet. and this guy loved to work counterfeiting and didn't like to do protection. So they kind of just let him liaison with Stockton PD and all, you know, San Joaquin County and all that area down there. And um, you know, so, you know, he did that kind of stuff, but they had people embedded Believe it or not, they had people embedded in Bakersfield and, you know, lots of little, they're just all over the place. Huh. So, yeah, wherever the. So is, is, the sorry, need, go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say wherever the need arises. Yeah, they just had, they just have personnel everywhere. But, you know, you're traveling so much that, you know, rumor was I had a desk in the Sacramento field office, but I was hardly ever there. <laughs> you know, so. That's where I got my mail. Um, yeah, exactly. Did, I'm curious. So is like that the equivalent? I'm like thinking of like kind of like a farm system of like the minor leagues or even just like major league teams. But then is is like getting called up and going to the show. That's yeah. that's like a presidential level or like when you're in the District of Columbia, it's like a, an, another echelon of uh, of the Secret Service that you get into. And are pe- was that? Was that something uh, that was very competitive or that, that, or was that like more of a younger guy's game that was trying to strive for that? Yeah, I think probably, probably all those things uh, factor in, you know, if you're, if you're new, 
they're you know they're not going to put you on president right. presidential protection division. Um, but you know, as you gain experience, you'll work your way up to different uh, protection divisions. But it, it's the way they work it is, you know, there there will be like take take the president for example, you know, there will be a a detail on him, you know, that's that's all they do is him. That's but then there's for his whole uh, administ- for his time in office. They try to keep. I'm sure they wanted to keep cohesion with yeah, a solid yeah, to team. the extent you can. People come and go, but you know, so they'll have the detail on him, and then there's rings of security that move out from there, and you know, so you can be permanently assigned to various rings. Um, but what they do a lot of times is they will they will bring in depending on where the president's traveling, they'll bring in agents from all of those geographic areas. Gotcha. So I was only a few weeks on the job when I got assigned to um, a Reagan visit in Reno, I think it was. And, oh, you know, wow. here's I'm a, you know, I'm a fairly new agent and, you know, I'm 10 feet away from Ronald Reagan. And it was a thrill. Wow. You know, it was really a thrill. I can only imagine. Were but, you when did he get shot? Was that in that was 81? 80? 81. That, okay. That happened to be Reno. I was 11 feet away when I said <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'm cur- I don't I don't remember my history where that happened. I feel like it had to have been East Coast, but um it was yeah. LA, I believe. Was it? I have to, oh, I have okay. to think for a minute. We're, no, no, no. He was no, he was in Washington. He was in DC. Wow. I, I had a brain fade for a minute, but yeah, he was in DC. <laughs> yeah. Cuz the hospital they rushed him to was was in DC. It was a trauma center. Unfortunately, they did a lot of gunshot wounds yeah. being Washington, <laughs> DC. Yeah. And they, I mean, that's... and the f- emergency room physician saw the little brown spot under his arm and knew that was an entry wound for a gunshot. Oh, so wow. A doctor who didn't see a lot of gunshots might have missed that or misdiagnosed it, but this guy knew, knew exactly what that was. It was small caliber. You know, Hinkley was shooting a 22 which is an absolutely deadly weapon. And, um, but this emergency room doctor picked it up quickly, saved his life. So. Wow. Sorry to derail you. I, we were, this was, you were talking about your first, you were, you were pretty young on the scene and he came into Reno. What, what, yeah. do you remember what year this is? It would have been um, 86. 86. Let's see, is that right? Yeah, 1986. Yeah. And that was just before Steve-O was born-ish, right? You're, when were you born, 87 yeah. or 87. 88? 87. 87. Yeah. Okay. Steven so, was not on the scene yet. <laughs> no, I came later and, and ruined everything. <laughs> not a bit. So, so going bit. back to the vetting, the vetting process for recruits, I was reading that uh, of all federal agencies like the FBI and the NSA and the CIA – the Secret Service is the only one that's never been infiltrated by uh, a ne'er do well, if you will. Like, there's never been a double, <laughs> a, like, no agent has like betrayed, you know. And you would think that oh, that would sleeper. be that would be the goal because they get closest to the most high value people. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of goes. Are you or are you not the Black Angel of Death? So, whatever they're doing in their vetting process, it seems to be working. But you know, that's a good point. Yeah. But so, what was the what was the training like? Did you have to go? I, I'm picturing like a boot camp kind of situation where 
Yeah, good question. Or or like an academy, is it more like one than the other? I, I imagine the training's got to be pretty intense. Yeah. Um, so, you know, without getting into too many specifics, they ship you off first to uh, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, which they use the acronym FLETSI, um, in Georgia, uh, southern part of Georgia. And it's a huge campus. As, as I was told, it's a former uh, naval base where they used to train submarine uh, crews. Hmm. And um, so it's, it's an interesting place. It's enormous, number one, a lot of, lot of land and a lot of buildings and a lot of the very large hangar type buildings they have there have no windows. And it was part of the submarine training, as I was told, you know, that you go into these buildings where they can make them completely black. There's no windows anywhere, which makes for a great um, indoor shooting range because you can, you know, completely control the lighting. So anyway, you do, you do X number of weeks there and that's, that's kind of a generic law enforcement academy type setting, but you've got 60 some odd federal law enforcement agencies that train there. I think every law, every federal law, I mean, I saw walls of badges for federal law enforcement agencies. I never even knew existed. And, um, (laughs) you know, Supreme court police and, you know, just weird stuff, you know? Um, but Every, every federal law enforcement agent, just about every federal law enforcement agency will, will train there except for uh, FBI. They go out to Quantico and then CIA has the farm. And I don't, you know, but I think, it, I think all the others train out at, out at Fletzy. And then from there, you go off to your respective agencies for more specific you know, training for that agency. Like I, I went off on to DC uh, for quite a while, uh, training at the Secret Service School, I guess you'd call it. Um, so, so was your uh, uh, focus on? Uh, I know you alluded to the counterfeiting. Was that mainly your bread and butter? And then so, and when these times when the president was on the campaign trail or happened to be in a certain region, there were times that you got called in, uh, as support. Yeah. So you have the dual function, right. And, Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it was kind of the opposite. And I, I don't, I don't really think my situation was too unique, but I enjoyed the protection aspect. And so the boss in my office, you know, knew that, and he knew some of the older guys had, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to, they were tired of traveling and, you know, so my situation was I was gone on a protection detail 90% of the time. And then, you know, the time, you know, maybe 80, 90% of the time. And then those times when I was uh, back in the office, um, I would participate in, counterfeit investigations, what, you know, whatever happened to be going on. But that was, that was a small part. And I didn't have a lot of investigations of my own because I was gone all the time. I would, you know, if they, they did, they did assign me cases and I would, I would get these cases and I'd start to work them up. And then I'd be gone for three weeks, you know, and then you come back and you have to blow the dust off your case file and figure out what you were doing oh, yeah. and where you were working for a week. And then you're gone for another three weeks. 
Um, wow. So, you know, they didn't give me a lot of big cases because I was just never there. And that was an agreement between me and the boss. I mean, I, I would help other agents on their credit card forgery or their counterfeiting cases. But otherwise, it was kind of like, leave me alone because I want the next trip that's coming up. And there's a mm-hmm. ton of protection details out there because it isn't just the president. I mean, he's kind of the you know most well-known guy. And depending on the president, a lot of them travel a lot. Some of them don't travel much. But you have the president, you have the vice president, uh, and then you have all these foreign dignitaries that come into the country. And if you're a head of government or a head of state, you get Secret Service protection. Like if it was the Queen of England coming in, she's a head of state. Uh, or if it was the Prime Minister of in, you know of, of the UK, I guess coming in, that's a head right. of government. And so you have tons of foreign dignitaries that travel in the United States, and they all get details, protection details. And then if there's somebody else that the president wants to have a protection detail, they'll they'll get it assigned. Like um, uh, the Treasury Secretary. Um, I'm trying to remember how this went, but James Baker was the treasury secretary back in the day. And then I think he became secretary of state and secretary of state usually gets state department dignitary protection division. But James Baker, having been treasury secretary, he had a secret service detail because we're treasury. And when he went over to state department, he told the president, his good buddy, I want a secret service detail. And the president said, you got it. So, and then every four years, of course, you have an election and every uh, candidate, uh, I'll I'll call him a viable candidate. Every viable candidate gets uh, a protection detail at some point in, in the campaign, some more early than others, if they have a high threat level, and then yeah. some maybe a little closer to the convention, but you know if if the if the you know if the elections in November, uh, most candidates will have a detail by like January or February that will work them all the way through to the to the convention, and then if they're nominated, work them all the way through to the election, and then if they get elected president, that candidate detail turns it over to PPD. Presidential Protection Division, if they won the election, if they lost the election, the the Secret Service detail goes home, literally just walks out the door. Wow. So it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it sounds like there's no shortage of opportunities. And when you put it in that context with all the different uh, high level uh, government officials and things. Well, yeah, it's like governors and stuff like state governors and, and, and that. Kind no, of level it, two, or do they have their own no. state level? They uh, have their own. Like California um, used to have state police, um, but that was merged into CHP many, many years ago. So the governor's protection detail is provided by CHP. Gotcha. They have okay. a they have a government gov- you know, probably what they so call they have their exec- own division within whatever state's yes. highway patrol. That's what it's yeah, called. Yeah, okay. some kind of executive protection division. Gotcha. Yeah. So in, so in uh, previous presidents, they get protection for life, right? Oh, yes. yeah. What about yes. their families? Because it's also their families, you know, not just the person, right? Like immediate? 
Um, well, a former president, uh, you know, and I'm going to tell you what, you know, my best, my best knowledge is it could have changed, but I don't, I don't think it is, but, uh, the former president gets protection for life. And it used to be the former president and their spouse would get it for life. But many years ago, they took the spouse off. Um, and so, cuts. yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> You know, so I get so, you know, like right now, you know, I, I would imagine, um, you know, Bush maybe still has a detail, Clinton, Obama, you know, that type of thing. Uh, an interesting thing, you know, when Richard Nixon resigned in what yeah, was that, that seems like it'd be thorny. 73, I think, is that when he resigned? Anyway, so when he resigned, uh, he had a protection detail, presidential protection it would be, it's called a former detail at that point because you're a former president, but that's just the name they give it. Um, he had a, he had a protection detail. And then not too long after he left office, he signed off. He, he, he went without, which I was so kind can, of interesting You can thing. elect, you can elect to just be like, nah, I'm good. A, at wave. some point you probably can, um, you know, if you're a fresh former president, um, I don't think that would be a wise thing to do because you're still a pretty heavy kidnap threat. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. you still know a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, but when you've been out of office, you know, three to five years, it, you know, China knows everything you, you used to know, you know, so mm -hmm. you're just, you could probably walk away from it at that point. Uh, but he's the only one I ever heard of that, you know, dismissed his protection detail. As far as I know, all the others still have one. Uh, can we circle back real quick? One of the things I wanted to ask you, you talked about evaluating threats, like credibility, like, oh, yeah, this guy's just a crackpot who's just writing a manifesto in his cabin in the woods, or or this guy's, <laughs> this guy's a legit threat. Yeah. I don't know if, if you can go into much about, like, what what's the calculus for determining how much of a threat somebody actually is versus just kind of a blowhard? Yeah, I mean it's it's probably you know as you would imagine it's it's multifaceted. I mean you're you're going to look at the whole picture. So you know a lot of the threats um, that I worked um, were guys who were drunk. You know, said something in a bar, somebody hears it, they drop a dime on them. You know, and next thing you know, they got Secret Service knocking at the door. You know, maybe they're married, they've got kids, they got a stable job, they just said something stupid in a bar. You know, you know, you, you look at everything and, you know, you make the best determination you can as opposed to, you know, maybe somebody who's a little more radical. Um, maybe it's multiple threats. You know, do they have the money to buy a plane ticket to even fly to D.C. to, you know, go shoot the president? You know, it's 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 a somewhat of a sophisticated undertaking to take out a government official. So you kind of have the the wherewithal you know, to do it. And most of the people that we investigated, I would say were just kind of crackpots, yeah. but you, you don't, you know, you don't stop watching them though. And yeah. you may secret service may keep an eye on them for years afterwards, wow. um, which was not an unusual thing to happen that we, we had cases on people who had made a threat of one, you know, degree or another, and, you know, they get Secret Service, 
you know, they get slid under the microscope for for years. At some at some point, you may just blow it off and go, OK, we're done with this guy. You know, he's whatever. But um, it's a good way to make a friend for life. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even imagine how difficult it must be now with technology. I mean, I feel like it's probably a double edged yeah. sword. Like it probably helps sort of aggregate all of this data of all these different people, but it, I could see it creating another avenue for even more people to come up on the radar. Of, oh yeah. You know, social media, like offhanded comments, like great. Now we have 10,000 more people who made some flippant remark that we have to look into, but, but I could also see yeah. the data, like the technology being really helpful for if this one guy, his name keeps popping up over and over, you know, it could trigger some kind of algorithm or something, but yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't want to, you don't want to be the agent who investigated some guy who made a threat and then come back and say, yeah, the guy's no threat, you know? And then the next thing you know, he shows up at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but uh, yeah, that's like the worst nightmare. Yeah. Well, and I feel like you, you hear that too, where, you know, some guy, I feel like not, a couple of years ago, there was a guy who was able to hop the fence at the White House and run in, and he got pretty close yeah. to the actual White House. And I think when they looked yeah. him up, they're like, yeah, he was kind of on our radar from years ago, but just like a tiny little blip. Wow. And then and then just like that, yeah. he hops the fence and made it almost inside. And I think one uh, agent was like asleep or something. It it didn't look good. But <laughs> Damn. Yeah, it's um, well, you know, you got two things at play at the White House. Um, you've, you've got two two different groups uh, within the Secret Service. Well, there's multiple groups within the Secret Service, but you know, you have the regular agents, Secret Service agents, and then you have Secret Service Uniform Division, and a lot of the security at the White House. It, it, you'll see these guys in uniform, and they're uniform division. So they're not agents, but they are part of the secret service, but they're, it's just different. And if they screw up, you know, the media just says, well, secret service screwed up. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, but, but they're like the JV squad. Yeah. You know, I I don't, a lower tier. Well, you know, I hate to use that term, but you know, if you had asked me when I was an agent, I would have said, yeah, you know, they're, (laughs) they're them, you know, um, it's like, although, Go ahead. I was just going to say it's like the different military branches that all think the others are kind of less than, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or it's yeah. like when I was a cop, you know, we all look down on CHP, you know, they're not real <laughs> yeah. cops, you know, it's just, but it's that, you know, kind of interagency, you know, <laughs> rivalry. But um, within the, within the uniform division, you know, you have some real badass, you know, groups because they provide uh, along with the military, you know, we, we would, supplement a lot of our security with Marines um, and tough guys. And, but, you know, the uniform division would provide our, our snipers, our counter snipers, what they call them, CS teams, counter sniper teams. And, um, you know, you'll see the guys on top of the white house and with their long range guns, but they're all over, they're all over the area. You know, they're not only on the white house looking away, they're, away looking at the white house, you know, so you got counter snipers everywhere and then they try, they travel with the president. So you got counter sniper teams out there and they're provided by uniform division. A lot of the uniform division, you know, guys will have uh, bomb and drug sniffing dogs. And, you know, so there's a lot of different, 
you know, groups within uniform division within secret service. So, you know, one of my, being a logistics guy, one of the things that I always think about, that's not very sexy, but like when I think, when I hear about all these different, um, uh, agencies and then arms and then there's like these subdivisions within it's like it it seems like a monumental undertaking to coordinate like travel Mm -hmm. who's going to be with who oh yeah which team's going to be tasked with this area to this these individuals like all of that just it's and for everything to work in concert like that it seems and i mean for for the most part goes off without a hitch or else you know, people will be dying probably left, right, yeah. front and center. But uh yeah, I was thinking about that. Like it's like, gosh, there's so much like like the levels of bureaucracy and, and uh just yeah. just everything to keep that that going and, and intact seems like just kind of mind boggling that, that anything gets oh, yeah. done at all. Yeah, I can I can tell you that, you know, the logistics department of Secret Service were just rock stars. I mean, they were handling, you know, hundreds and hundreds of agents traveling all over the country, you know, for different details and all those details are moving with that protectee. And, you know, you've got motorcades and helicopters and motorcycles and you're coordinating with, you know, local PDs and, you know, the agents have to have a place to, you know, hotel to sleep at night, you know, cars to drive, you know, so it's, it was just huge. Yeah, I'm sure that's a lot of that's kind of like, you know, you don't think about it, but it's all got to happen perfectly in that web, like in the background for, for things to go off without a hitch. It's just, yeah, just wild. I was always impressed. They, they did it. They did a good job. Yeah. To make sure you got the right number of cars and like these people are here and then all the way down to the really unsexy stuff, like making Everything. sure they got it. So yeah. a place to stay and eat and, and making up. Cause I'm sure even one or two of those things uh, you mess up and it's like a domino effect. And yeah. especially if you're on like a campaign trail for like five, yes. six months, keeping that all that machine running seems insane, but yeah, I'm curious getting to something more sexy. Uh, I'm thinking, have you ever had, um, well, one is, any kind of jurisdictional pissing match kind of thing between any of these different agencies or different rings, as you alluded to, like uh, that come to mind, you know, we like we head butting kind of stuff. I'm sure some of that went on, you know, um, it, it's just probably unavoidable, but you know, mostly what I dealt with, uh, were you know the other agents in my group, and then when you would go into a jurisdiction, you know if your protectee was going into you know like say you're going to fly into Dallas or something, we had really good cooperation with all the police departments, highway patrols, departments of public safety. They were they were great. I mean, we did a lot of traveling in New York, and you know I was really impressed by the NYPD, the officers there that we dealt with very professional, you know, all across the country. Uh, and a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of departments will use a visit uh, uh, of a dignitary as a training platform. And cause I remember one time flying into, um, we flew into Dallas, Fort Worth. And it was when I was working campaign trail and I was assigned to Jesse Jackson. And um, we, 
they the the uh, Secret Service put a detail on Jesse Jackson really early in the campaign because he had such a high threat level. Oh yeah, I'm sure. <clears throat> but we flew into uh, Dallas Fort Worth and we were supposed to motorcade from there. We talk about logistics. When the plane lands, you have to have the motorcade ready to go. You know, it's mm-hmm. a, anyway, like right but, there, <laughs> <clears throat> right there, right. You know, right at the base of the stairs. You don't want to be wandering around going, Hey, where's my ride? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't somebody supposed to pick me up here, yeah. but so, but we get to, we get to Dallas, you know, and it's cold. I remember it was winter, but anyway, we, we come down the, you know, the, the stairs, get in the motorcade and Dallas Fort Worth or the Metro area or whatever Dallas PD they had brought out probably no less than like 50 motor cops Damn. and they were escorting the motorcade on a freeway. And the way they do it is almost like a ballet because you'll have the, the lead. If you think of like 50 motors side by side, you're going to have it 25 deep. And as you get up onto the freeway, the top two will motor up, peel off and block an on-ramp. And then oh, another God. two will go up and they'll block an off-ramp because you don't want somebody coming up the off-ramp. Mm-hmm. And so you have this ballet where this line of motors are leapfrogging, blocking on-ramps, blocking off-ramps. And then when the motorcade passes, they circle back in, past the motorcade, and they go into the back of the line. And it's it's a thing to watch, but it's you can't get that kind of training just running, you know, 50 right. motors out there. on the, So they would take, uh, you know, visits, uh, you know, d- dignitary visits like this as a training exercise, not necessarily because Jesse Jackson needed 50 motor cops, you know, mm-hmm. to run his motorcade, but they saw it as a training tool. And I saw that a lot across the country. Let me turn that off. Where, um, <laughs> we don't want any. It's your brother, Stephen. So, wow. Um, but anyway, so we, I saw Pick that a lot up, of have, have him have him remote in. That'd be fun. <laughs> Just <laughs> Steve's so, like, no, <laughs> crazy. The greatest but, trick uh, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. That's C.S. Lewis. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I pulled it. I know it from a movie, <laughs> The Usual Suspects. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah, he says the, the devil wants to make sure, you know, you either think he's everywhere or he's nowhere. He's fine with either of those. Yep. But uh, <laughs> it's funny. Man, that I wish the, I had Dallas that story, the devil is a liar. It, Sorry. I, I can't help but wonder if, if Dallas is maybe overcompensating in the presidential security department so they don't get another one killed in their city. Oh, good point. Yeah. Like, good, not good again. Point. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny, funny story about that. Speaking of you know, presidential assassinations in Dallas. Um, I was work. I was working at protectee one time at, it may have been Jackson. I'm not really sure. I can't remember who, but uh, working at, um, we worked them in to this town, Dallas at night. Um, and so you couldn't see anything. It's all dark. Of course, we work them into the hotel, get them all situated, you know, and then, the agents I was with, we could crash for a while and then we had to be back first thing in the morning at, cause there was night shift watching them. And anyway, I go into the command post 
which is in a hotel room near the Protectees Hotel room. I go in the command post. It's sunrise. And my shift leader is standing by the window of the hotel looking out the window. And the sun is just coming up. And he says, uh, hey, come over here for a second. So I walk over and he goes, look out the window. And I look out the window. He goes, what do you see? And I look out the window. And it was one of these things where your brain starts to work in slow motion. I'm in a hotel and the window, I'm looking down on Dealey Plaza where John Kennedy had been shot in 1963. And all of a sudden, all these pictures and movies and stuff I'd seen of the road and where it makes the turn and the Texas School Book Depository where Oswald was shooting from. The whole thing, you know, it's like it starts, the fog starts to clear, you know, as I'm watching this. And it was like, wow, what a weird thing that, you know, I'm a Secret Service agent and I'm standing in this hotel looking at Dealey Plaza where, you know, history, you know, Mm -hmm. took place in 1963 um, you know, anyway, it was, it was just yeah, one of those surreal moments. Yeah. I was going to say that's got to be super surreal to, to see that. Like, it's funny. I know, I know people from Texas and they're like, yeah, Dealey Plaza, whatever, you know, cause they've grown up there and they, it's just, you know, part of the city yeah. in the background, but yeah, to, to see it like that for the first time in that light, that sounds, yeah, yeah pretty, kind of cool. Transformative. Are there any other things that looking back, because obviously looking back at that assassination, driving through town with an open top vehicle is probably not a very smart thing to do. Do you ever look back at certain situations? Are we going to get tinfoil hat going right now? No, no. Just like um, tactics, you know, looking back like, ooh, that's not smart to let this guy in close or, you know, because you're always learning. I'm wondering if, if you look back at anything, any old stuff and like lessons learned. Yeah, yeah, about- I, I've heard a lot of stuff about like, you know, I, you know me, I like a good conspiracy and uh, <laughs> I've heard a lot of stuff behind uh, like, like maybe not former uh, secret service, but former law enforcement and military and how they've kind of looked at this and dissected like, you know, like this row of buildings here, these windows, we would have had agents right there or a sharpshooter mm-hmm. here. The way the top down, the way that he did that slow turn around that like dog leg, yeah. they never would have gone that route because it's, it's, uh, it exposed him going like five miles an hour. We would never would have let him hit this spot. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm curious too about like what your take, Tom, would be on, on that kind of thing too. Like, like, uh, as an armchair quarterback, like were there things that you see that are pretty glaring? Like they shouldn't have done that. Is that kind of what you're getting yeah. at? Sorry. I stepped all over what you you were saying, Steve, but no, I want I want to hear the answer. I just meant in general, like if you look at old pictures or film, like, Oh, they're letting that crowd get too close or they're not checking these guys. Yeah. Just anything like that. That it's and, yeah. And, they, they, when, whenever there's an incident, you know, of course, you know, the Kennedy assassination was huge and the and the the reforms within Secret Service that came out of that were, you know, extensive. Just like after Reagan was shot, uh, they changed a number of things. I mean, look how close yeah. the crowd was to Reagan when he was shot. I mean, mm-hmm. what, twenty feet mm-hmm. away? Um so, you know, they always do an extensive debrief, but but herein lies the problem with protecting a dignitary um, in the United States. And that is if Secret Service had their way, 
they would put the protectee in an armored personnel carrier, <laughs> right? Yeah. With tanks around him. <laughs> um, we'd have the night stalkers flying low over the motorcade with their 50 caliber machine guns ready to go. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you wouldn't let them get near a crowd. You wouldn't have any open arrivals. You would, you know, so if the secret service had their way, it would be total and complete protection, removing every possible threat you could think of. Well, if you're a politician, you want the opposite. You want to be kissing babies and shaking hands and, you know, working the crowd and, you know, waving out the window. And, you know, so it's always, there's always a tension. And, you know, it probably, you were talking about button heads with other law enforcement agencies. I saw a lot more headbutting going on with the protectee where they wanted to go they wanted to go for a jog at, you know, six o'clock in the morning and run through some park so they could meet people. And it's like, we're not doing that. No, we're not, you know, mm-hmm. we're not, not here, not now, not then, you know? And so not I ever. probably <laughs> saw, you know, that our shift leader, our detail leader probably had more, um, not arguments, but more discussions with protectees over, you know, kind of the, you want to do what, yeah. um, and so, you know, you, we, we will try to compromise and, and, you know, come up with something, but it's, it's, it's a real tension because, you know, if you're running for office or, and, and they're always, no matter what job you have, you're still, you're always running for office. It seems like, even mm-hmm. if you're a second term president. Right. Um, and so they, they want to be out in the crowd they want to, you know, you know, grip and grin and, you know, like I said, do all that kind of stuff. So. It, there's always a trade-off, but anytime there's an incident, um, usually, and even if nothing happens, but there's some kind of incident, they will always go back and debrief and how can we make it better, but still provide the protectee with the freedom that they want to work the crowd. And sometimes, you know, you'll see it. I mean, presidents are going to wade into the crowd and, um, it's just the way it is. You just do the best you can. Um, what what you try to do is if you're going to do something that's dangerous like that, and this is just common sense, this isn't, you know, tactics and procedures, but if you're going to do something that's dangerous, do it spontaneously, you know, and that way the jackal is caught off guard and doesn't know you're doing it because nobody knew you were going to do it. I mean, I, I, there were times where working a protectee, they would stop the motorcade, jump out of the limo run over to the crowd and start shaking hands. Well, on the one hand, that's a very dangerous thing to do. But on the other hand, nobody's expecting that. So, you know, the jackal isn't waiting there with his gun because it's mm-hmm. so unexpected. And so, you know, you can sometimes reduce danger by by playing off the unexpected nature of the act. And, and you can do that a little intentionally too, by just saying, you know, the protectee may say, here's what I want to do. And the secret service is like, that's fine, but we're not going to tell anybody. We're not going to tell the press. <laughs> we're not going to tell anybody, you yeah. know, when it comes time, you know, you just do that. And the only people that know are going to be the agents. Right. So, you know, it's, well, what, it's a balance. What, when you're looking at a crowd of people, what, what are the, the types of things you're looking for, for somebody who could be lying in wait? Is it, I'm sure it's like anything else, the totality of the circumstances, but I'm wondering what the biggest like red flags are that, that these guys are looking for. 
if you can Don't share it on me patch. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, <clears throat> well, it's kind of the same thing, you know, and it's probably why the secret service hires a lot of, you know, former cops because it's, it's kind of the same thing that, you know, you're always looking for the thing that doesn't look right. Um, you've got, you know, a hundred people in the crowd and they're all acting a certain way, except one guy isn't. Right. And you got a bogey. There's something there's so there's something wrong, you know, they're all, you know, cheering and clapping and all this. And maybe one guy's not, or maybe it's something they're wearing, you know, it's a hot day, but they're wearing a trench coat. Um, anything that just doesn't look right as you scan. So you see these guys are scanning the crowd and what they're looking for is who does, what doesn't look right. Yeah. And that's a skill mm-hmm. that you kind of have to learn. Um, but you know, you're, you're always, you're just always looking for the thing that seems a little different. And then when you get close to the crowd, you're looking for that, but you're also watching hands because if somebody's going to do something, they're going to have to do it with their hands. And that's why you'll see anybody who's into protection. um, They always kind of have their hands up, maybe chest level, abdomen level. You know, they're always just watching hands and because that's where the threat's going to come from, you know, um, so, yeah, that just stuff sense. like that. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if at a certain point, it's like uh, that makes me think of the Malcolm Gladwell book Blink, where even if you don't know what looks off about something or somebody, it just becomes like a sixth sense if they've been doing it long enough. You know, just scanning a crowd like this guy looks weird. I'm not really sure why, so I'll just kind of yeah. take a take a longer <clears throat> look at him. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you you put some common sense out there, you know. Could, could a little old lady be, you know, an assassin? Yeah. Is it likely? Probably not. You know, right. it's like the Marines used to say, you know, we're always looking for MAMs, M-A-Ms, military age males. Yeah. You know, their, their, their <laughs> threat is going to come from, you know, some guy who's, you know, 20, age 20 to 35. That's, that's their threat. You mm-hmm. know, could be a kid. Yeah. Could be a woman. Yeah. Could be an old person. Yeah. But, but the probability you know, is yeah the 80 20 rule the 80 20 yeah. rule 80 percent of them are going to be mams military age males that's just life in the big city so yeah some is people it, uh, they call it profiling in a negative way but I mean it's just kind of the reality yeah it's common yeah. sense common sense I'm curious I, I have I have two questions one I'll, I guess I'll save maybe for a little bit later but one is uh is there any place or area in general, like when you were going, you'd be like, oh shit, like I guess maybe in the 80s, Detroit probably springs to mind as a place you wouldn't want to be? Or like, is there is there a certain place where you'd kind of grown or like, you know, oh man, this is going to be trouble from like past experience or reputation or like like scuttlebutt maybe you heard from from other agents during the course of your uh, your tenure? Yeah, it's uh, that's that's a that's a funny question because um, it it all a lot of it has to depend on who the protectee is and where they're going, and um, you know, like I said, I I did about um, I did about nine months on Jesse Jackson's detail when he was running for president in 1988, his his second run, mm-hmm. and he went to a lot of places that you might consider dangerous but they loved him Mm -hmm. and there was there was no there was no danger no threat i mean they they love this guy 
The only time I ever saw a crowd get hostile or verbal, when you say hostile, but verbal anti-Jackson is when he spoke at a, a nuclear plant and he was anti-nuclear. And yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, know your audience. Yeah. You know, um, it's like you don't, you know, you don't go to a bus driver convention and talk about getting rid of buses. Yeah. You know, that's not, you're not going to be well received. And so that was, but, and that was mild, really. I mean, you know, people ask me, you know, you guys you spent nine months with Jesse Jackson. That must have been scary. It's like, you know, kind of the opposite. He, he went to places where he was invited and places where they loved him. Mm -hmm. And it was, and, and he was an okay guy, you know? Um, so it, I, th I think I, remember, I, that's weird. I forgot that completely. I think you had told me that Steve, like when we were working together all those years, like, yeah, my dad worked for the secret service and Jesse Jackson, I completely, completely fell out of my brain, but, um, yeah, well, he seems like, you know, like the figure that he was, he was kind of a controversial figure, um, oh, to yeah. some people, I guess, <laughs> but, um, I, yeah. I just thought he seemed like a cool dude for sure. But yeah, he yeah. seemed like if, if you were on a certain detail, that would, that would be the one that, you know, you'd be extra on your guard for because he was such a controversial figure. And during that time, a black man too, like going to certain places, like in the deep South, I'm sure I'd, I'd be, uh, I'd be a little worried about going to like, I don't know like Mississippi somewhere in there, like Birmingham, Alabama, like places like we, that. But we went to all those places, but I'll tell you the, 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 where we went in those towns, they loved him, and, you know, had invited him. And so it, it really wasn't, I mean, sometimes the biggest problem was that he would draw pretty good sized crowds and, you know, there's danger in crowds, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, otherwise, um, it, you know, whether it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a problem. And like I said, he, you know, I, I didn't really agree with his politics, but you know, that issue aside, he was an okay guy. He, he was very respectful of the agents. Mm -hmm. um, not all protectees are some protectees, especially foreign nationals who get a secret service detail seem to look at them as servants. Like the help. And, yeah. The help. And um, sometimes you have to, dispossess them of that pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, but Jackson was on board. I'll, I'll tell you one funny story. When um, when Jackson announced that he was running, this would have been November, I think it was November of 87, long before the election, a year before the election. Uh, but whenever it was he announced, Secret Service immediately put a detail on him and that I got assigned to that detail. And so we had to fly out. He was, uh, Jesse Jackson made his announcement, I believe in Washington, DC, but that's where we picked him up. That's where his first detail us was assigned to him was in Washington, DC. Well, he lived in Chicago. Um, so we met up with him. It was a late afternoon in DC, you know, we're new to him. He's new to us. We're, you know, we're all trying to, and you know, it's a big group. We're all trying to get to know each other. And so, you know, the plan was we're going to work him from DC. We're going to work him in a motorcade to the airport and then we're going to fly to Chicago and then we'll work him to his home and he's, he's going to go home. And, uh, 
<clears throat> he had at that point, you know, a lot of staff, a lot of hanger ons, strap hangers, I guess, you know, the politicians mm-hmm. call them, um, hanging around him in DC. And so when it came time to load up the motorcade and head to the airport in DC, there's all this luggage lined up on the sidewalk. I mean, you can imagine tons of people, tons of luggage. And so, you know, and there's, and the agents, you know, we got our luggage too, you know, but that's being handled by what they called a TSA agent. They were a technical services administration. They, they were assigned to secret service, but they were kind of like our help, you know, Mm -hmm. but anyway, so, we didn't worry about our luggage, you know, Jackson and he had his crew and all that taking care of him. So we work him to the airport. We get on the plane, we fly to Chicago, we get off the plane in Chicago and it's late and they're taking all the luggage out of the plane. And one of his staff comes up and says, pointing to his other staff, like our luggage is not on the plane. And Jackson looks at him and says, well, where was it? And the staffer says it was on the sidewalk with all the other luggage and the secret service didn't put it on the plane. And Jackson looks at his staffer and says, their job is not to hump your luggage. You carry your own (laughs) luggage. If you want it, go back and get it. (laughs) And the agents heard that. And all of a sudden Jesse Jackson's stock goes way up in our book. Oh yeah. I'm sure. And he looks over at us and says, Come on, boys. Let's go home. <laughs> that's awesome. Having yeah. someone like that, like, oh yeah, because yeah, immediately that's someone you want to you want to fight for, you know, or you want to exactly. Like, okay, this guy's he's not some yep. pompous, like pretentious asshole, you know. That's like yes. And he was kind of that way for for the next nine months. I mean, he was he was just very friendly. He was um, um, cooperative. Because sometimes he'd want to do A and we wouldn't, we would suggest B and, you know, he was diplomatic and, um, you know, sometimes could be bullheaded, but, you know, that's just kind of the alpha male that most politicians are. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, so it, you know, he was an okay guy. Right on. But I I guess real quick, back to the question, were there any places where you're like, oh, damn it, we're going to... West Texas, or we're going to uh, Oklahoma City. Like, were there places like internally where you'd be like, "I'd rather be somewhere else." Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of places that you know, it's like we're going to you know we're going to El Paso. It's like, oh boy, you know. <laughs> um, the pro- the the thing is though, yeah, the funny thing is though, when you're working a, a you know when you're working a, a dignitary or a protectee, these guys travel constantly. So you're never in any place long enough to really like it or hate it. You, you'll work him to an event and then you'll work him to the hotel and then you grab a little sleep if you can, unless you're working a night shift. And then the next morning you work him to the airport. You know, some of these guys, if they're campaigning, they will do three or four cities a day. Yeah. Wow. you're just, I mean, it's insane the um, travel schedule that these guys uh, subject themselves to. I mean, it's a marathon. 
Yeah, I've thought about it as I've gotten older, like sometimes like when I like sit and think about it and it's like, God, that sounds so lame. Like to be like even like a low level politician that probably still has to travel a lot. I think about that and that just it sounds like such a grind. Like it is a hotel grind. hotel to airport to event to hotel yeah. to airport event, bam, bam, like ugh. Well, did yeah, they also- I mean, I, I went to a thousand cities and I, and all I really ever saw was the airport and the hotel, you know, right? it yeah, was rare. It was rare. We'd ever have a down day. Probably the only time like with Jackson, we ever had a down day if he was staying at home for like the whole day at home. Um, and you, you know, were off during the day, you might be able to, you know, look around Chicago a little bit, but that was rare, very rare. Are there? I guess the the flip side of that coin. Are there any places that you really liked, and you were like, "I'm I'm going to come back here later," like Boston or New York or somewhere that like piqued your interest? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of places that I wanted to see. They're historic, you know, like you say Boston or something. But a lot of places I wanted to see something other than the hotel and the airport. You know, right? It's like I would like to come back and see this town someday. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, yeah. I was, I haven't been a lot of places. One of, one of which I was Boston that I went to and it, w- it was really cool doing the whole freedom trail. The, the, oh, yeah. the, what are they? They have like a line. Yeah. It's, it's like a red line, the freedom trail that you can walk and it takes mm-hmm. you through. I mean, it's eroded in some places, but yeah, just like that's this being a California boy. I'm sure you can, you can uh, commiserate that there's not, there's history, but when you go to East coast, it's like a different kind. Like they actually have yes. like, like there's roads that have like old cobblestones from like the 1800s still on some of these funky little side streets, you know, that just, yeah. Yeah. That was, that was one uh, place that I was fortunate enough to go to. That was awesome with like loaded with like American history and just like, like living histories, like the Paul Revere house still being yes. up and you can go check it out. Like that was a really fun, fun city, but yeah, that would be I, fun. One other question I had too, and I'm gonna I'll stop because Steve, I'm sure you got a couple other things. Was there anything that's fit to print that you feel comfortable talking about that you kind of overheard or um, like from any other dignitary or or detail that you had that was that was interesting or that gave you a chuckle or that was kind of controversial it during your time. That you feel comfortable enough speaking about that you can yeah. talk on? I, you know, and you do hear a lot of stuff, you know, because you're close <laughs> to them. Yeah. Uh, in the hotel room, you may be in a hotel room with them or you may be in the limo, driving the limo. Oh, I'll tell you one kind of cute story. Um, <laughs> and it was when um, it was with Ronald Reagan and he was just recently a former president. He'd done his eight years. So this must have been, so George H.W. Bush took the 88 election, so he would have been inaugurated January of 89. So it must have been somewhere right after January 1989 when Reagan was now a former president, um, but still hugely popular. And um, uh, the Air Force was getting ready to release the uh, stealth fighter and the stealth bomber. Um, it had those aircraft like the B2, mm-hmm. I think it was the B2 bomber, the stealth bomber mm-hmm. had been rumored for a long time 
you know, flying out in the desert late at night, people were catching glimpses of this thing, which is really weird looking. Yeah. Um, it's like and a bat. it looks like a bat. And uh, <laughs> then, then the military did reveal, yes, we have this, but before they rolled it out for anybody to see, they invited Ronald Reagan to come to Edwards Air Force Base and have a tour um, of it as just kind of a thank you for his support of that program. Give him a look-see. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was working him at the time and, you know, we took him out to Edwards Air Force Base. And um, actually, I was going to a different story, but th- there's another story in that which is kind of interesting. You know, we work... We were President Reagan out to Edwards Air Force Base, and we meet up with the colonel who's in charge of that wing. And he gives us a little briefing and real nice guy, gives us some pictures of the B-2, him flying the B-2, and he signed him for us and all, all this kind of stuff. And then we get in back in the limo and go out to these hangars and super top secret. And so we get out there and he takes us into this hangar and here's this B-2 bomber in there. And it's, I mean, it's awesome to see one of those things <laughs> up close. I mean, they're just, you know, they're just a death machine. They're just <laughs> awesome looking. You know, they're all yeah. black and they just look like something, you know, that's built for war. And uh, they had the cockpit open, you know, they had the canopy open. Of course, it's way up high. They had the canopy open. They had the stairs up to the cockpit, if I'm using the right terms. And they had a airman posted at the bottom of the stairs who was a very no-nonsense guy. I bet. <laughs> armed. And <clears throat> so the colonel is explaining, walking Reagan around the plane, explaining, you know, what we're looking at. And, of course, we're, we're, we're right next to him. And I'm just as interested in the plane yeah. as I am in, you know, <laughs> Because I figure we're probably in a pretty safe environment, so I'm not sure yeah. I got to be looking for the jackal every second, you know. But right. um, so he's walking around, he's explaining everything, and then the colonel says to Reagan, "Do you want to go up the stairs and take a look inside the cockpit?" And of course, Reagan, like you know, is like, "Oh yeah, I'd love to," you know. Um, and the detail leader puts his hand on Reagan's shoulder and says, "Hang on a second. And the detail leader sends me up the stairs to go look first. So as I start to climb the stairs, I notice the airman who's armed, who's standing by the stairway is giving me a dirty look. And I'm like, I wonder what that's, huh. I thought, you know, okay. So I go up, I look inside the cockpit and it's, it looks like, you know, star Wars. I don't know what I'm looking at, you know, right. I just, I'm just making sure there's no terrorist hiding inside. Right. <laughs> um, and okay. Yeah. We did our due diligence. So I come back down the stairway and I get out of the way and Reagan goes up and takes a look. And this airman is still giving me the stink eye. Oh man. Um, it was weird. You know, so anyway, <laughs> um, we, we come out and um, later on when we're back at the, at the uh, office with the colonel, I, I asked him, I said, by the way, just curious, don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I'm, I'm just curious, what was with the look I was getting? And the colonel laughed and he goes, that airman has been assigned to that plane for years. 
and doesn't have the security clearance to go up that ladder and look inside. Oh, man. <laughs> so you did something he's always wanted to do, but couldn't God do damn, it. You would think that guy, you wouldn't even let him go look inside the cockpit one time. Oh, man. He was just Strict. so salty. He's like, oh, this fuck this flat dick secret service guy got to see. I've been manning this post for three years and I haven't seen what the <laughs> Oh, I just, it was oh, kind of like, man. oh, I get it, man. I get it. You know, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you have any moves? I'd like to see you incorporate. Oh, man. Yeah, that's got to be rough for that guy. Especially yeah, it makes sense, even, though. Because you don't even know what you're looking at. He'd go up there and just nerd out, like, oh, wow, they've got the new 5400, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no one here, heading back down. <laughs> right. Yep. And I've been there all of 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, oh, and this, this guy has been protecting this thing for who knows how long. And, uh, but the Colonel thought it was funny. He saw it too. And, and, you know, he, he just, he thought it was funny, but he's kind of like, Hey, you got to understand, yeah. you know, he doesn't have, he's got a high security clearance, but it ain't that high. Yeah. Wow. And, um, but, That's but funny. you're talking about, you know, just kind of funny things before, before we were leaving, I was sitting in, I was driving the limo that day and I had, you know, Reagan in the back. And it was just the two of us. And oh. he, he was just, he's a personable guy. Um, and we're just chatting. And I'm just thinking how, that's another surreal moment. I'm just sitting in a, sitting in a car with Ronald Talking Reagan in the President back, Reagan. just chatting away, you know, and somebody had given him, you know, he was, a he, he loved cookies and jelly beans and Oh yeah, big sweet tooth. Big sweet tooth, and somebody had given him a bag of cookies with M um, and M's in them. So he reaches down, pulls up this bag of cookies, gets gets them out, breaks one in. I don't know if he broke it in half, but he's eating one of them, and he hands me the bag and says, "Have a cookie." <laughs> and it was just, I thought, you know, you're just a nice guy. You're just a normal nice guy, you know. But it was like. You know, no, thank you, Mr. President. I'll, you know, just like, are we having this wow. conversation? You know, but it was really cool. He was just, a, he was just a nice guy, but it was one of those moments of pretty nice. Huh. Yeah. That's crazy. I, I mean, had he's one. kind of a different animal too, being like a former actor, not a career politician kind of guy. So I'm curious how he would stack next to different presidents, but, uh, because he was kind of like a, a rock star in his day, and then to yeah, smart president, guy. But he's a smart guy. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that is super surreal. Yeah, that yeah. was kind of fun. I've always kind of wondered how it works with. I mean, just in the last thirty years, you've seen so many political changes back and forth. How it's ingrained in in all these agents. That's like it doesn't matter who the person is or what their politics are. It's still the job. You know, like I'm sure yeah. you didn't see a lot of. Oh, uh, we've got to protect this guy. I don't, I don't like what he's about, whoever it may be. You know, you kind of just got to put that to the side, but I wonder if you it's do. like most things when you, when you get to know a regular person and you take the politics out, it's like, they're still just a person at the end of the day. Yeah. You probably, you probably had some of that with, um, you know, because you've got agents of all kinds of ethnic groups, you know, and you've got foreign dignitaries coming in from all over the country and so you could see where maybe, you know, this president of Bosnia and some agent, you know, doesn't may not agree with the politics or whatever. But I, you know, there was you just put that aside, you, you know, yeah. 
the thing I thought it was always kind of interesting and it, and it kind of is one of those revelations that kind of snuck up on me that nobody ever said it, but after I had been on a number of protection details of foreign presidents, and I'll just use that term generally because a lot of them call themselves, you know, different. Chancellor, yeah, PM, just, yeah. Exactly. You know, I just call them, just, just say president. Um, or like Spain, it was the king, you know, they, he was a nice guy, but, um, you <laughs> oh, know, yeah, a lot. I mean, hell of a guy. He was a really nice guy. But, you know, the thing I started to notice, and if you have a chance, you you have more of a chance with a protectee like that to talk to him than you do, like, you know, the president or the vice president, because they've got, you know, a thousand staff around them all the time. And But a lot of these foreign dignitaries that would come in, you know, like the, the president of Argentina or Spain or you know, some Soviet bloc, former Soviet bloc countries would come in and you, um, you, and you'd either talk to them or you'd learn a lot of these guys were educated in America. Hmm. And wow. it was really interesting. Uh, you know, like um, I was talking to some, it was the president of, I think what used to be Yugoslavia. If I remember former right. Yugoslavia. What did that turn into? That turned into like Macedonia or no, that, I, I think that know. was before. Even. I don't know. And I may even be confusing him with somebody else because there were so many, but he and I got to talking, you know, we're standing somewhere waiting for something. And so, you know, just chit chatting, he was a Stanford grad and oh, wow. a lot of these other, you know, uh, European or Soviet or South American, Central American, uh, presidents were educated in America and then went back. So their English is impeccable smart guys, men or women, and, you know, American educated, which I thought was kind of just kind of an interesting, you know, yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy on like a macro, how many countries like where, you know, your second language that you learn is English, you know, like mm-hmm. how it's just almost like a, a de facto, you got to have this in your bag of tricks, but, um, yeah, it looks Yugoslavia was broke up into Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Macedonia, Slovenia, and and Montenegro. Hmm. That's what it was. But yeah, yeah, interesting. that's interesting that he like did his schooling in Silicon Valley. <laughs> a lot, a lot of any, a lot uh, of Ivy League, or you know, um, wow. And so they would come in and they'd bring their security detail with them. And then we would have our security details. So you'd always, you always have two, you know, uh, and they don't want to give up protection of their protectee, but they're on our turf. And so yeah, there's so always kind weird. of an in, interesting dynamic there. And yeah. very often they didn't speak English. Um, so that could be, that could be <laughs> difficult you know, you have to bond over like like poker or like baccarat or something like. Well, it's funny you should say that. What you end up bonding over is guns. You know, <laughs> you start showing them what you're carrying and what you've got, and they'll show you what they've got. And you know, it's it it was it was kind of the universal language of weaponry. You know. Yeah. So was, it, was there anything cool like standard issues that that people had? They're like, oh, that's a bitching gun, like. Yeah, you know, it's mostly it's mostly what you'd expect. I mean, yeah, mo- most of it's American made. It's Glocks and Sigs and you know yeah. Brownings and you know this Smiths, Rugers. There's that uh, there's that great picture of you 
in some limo with your aviators on and you're holding an Uzi. How'd you come across that? <laughs> How'd that come across nice. what? The Uzi. Was that standard issue or was that uh, yeah. aftermarket? No, we carried we carried the Israeli Uzi back in the day. Really? Yeah. I mean, it, wow. it was for an automatic weapon, it's a kind of a slow fire compared to what's out there now, but you can control a slow fire automatic weapon better than yeah. you can. If you've ever seen YouTubes of people who don't know how to handle an automatic weapon at a range, you you see it always walks up on them. Flies yeah. up, yeah. Yeah. Usually, I think, I forget what the, it's counterclockwise or whatever, but it, you know, you know, they, they can spray 30 bullets in two seconds and they're, they're all over yeah. the place. But the Uzi was slower. It was nine millimeters. So it's a submachine gun, um, indestructible, which is why the Israelis <laughs> carried it. I mean, you can drop it in the mud, drop it in the sand, you know. And so right. we, we carried those for many, many years. And, and of course, the weaponry now is so much more sophisticated. Yeah. You know, um, but they're still... They're still shooting, you know, nines and nine millimeters and, you know, stuff like that. Because one of the reasons a lot of law enforcement, a lot of military carry nine millimeters is because you can get nine millimeter all over the world. Mm, right. You know, everybody's got nine millimeter. So, you know, that was the thinking. But yeah, that was, um, yeah, I was, the, the person with the Uzi is called the gunman. You know, you have different positions for different people. Every every agent has a job. And so that picture you saw of me in the limo when I was showing a little barrel yeah, <laughs> was, um, I was gunman on that. And if you remember the picture of Reagan after he'd been shot, there was the agent holding the Uzi up, up against the wall. The guy's name was Bobby. And he's, and if, if you, if you pay attention to the picture, it, you know, Brady's laying there, you know, he's been shot. There was Thomas Delahanty. He was down. He was shot. They had Hinkley down and Bobby's holding the Uzi kind of in a port arms position. It's kind of a famous picture up against that I don't that know wall. if I've seen that. I'll have to look it up. Take, look it up. But in if you, if you pay attention in the foreground is an open briefcase and he was carrying that Uzi in this kind of modified briefcase thing. Oh. Because they didn't, they thought it was a little off putting to have the agents walking around with an exposed automatic weapon. Yeah. Which is kind of an American thing. We, mm -hmm. you know, typically you don't see your law enforcement, your Secret Service agents walking around with automatic weapons in front of them. Did you, so, do you remember just before I forget? I think it was during Trump's inauguration. There was that really famous picture of that secret service agent walking around and he had like this big overcoat and his arms were kind of out in front like this. But a lot of people were speculating that these were fake arms and that underneath oh. his jacket, he was carrying some, some heavy firepower. It's a pretty cool picture. If you haven't seen huh. it, we'll, we'll have to send it to you because it does kind of look yeah. unusual and it looks like what it sounds like, you know, these two fake arms kind of just clasp at the hand out in front of him. Oh, it's interesting. With some, with some bulk underneath. So it's probably the same idea. Cause he was walking along yeah. the, the parade or inauguration parade route. But yeah. So, so yeah. this agent had the, 
Uzi in the briefcase and probably had some way of getting it out quick instead of flicking the yes. dials. And Yeah, it was kind of clever. They had that, um, and then they had this um, shoulder bag, which was kind of goofy. It, it, it looked like um, some hipster's... Um, uh, what do you call those? Like, like satchel? Mes- yeah, like a messenger bag or like a messenger bag. Kind of went, kind of went over one shoulder, and it's it was des- satchel. Indiana satchel. Jones had one, yeah, yeah like that kind of thing. <laughs> and it was, it was really clever because the shoulder strap. Um, oh yeah, is this, this is this the one here? I think there's so. a couple. There, he's got it, and he's. It looks. Oh like no, about yeah. to collapse the stock, and then there's one here where he's. Holding the Uzi up, kind of. Yeah, that's uh, that's not the one. Uh, let me see. Yeah, I tried um, looking for. Yeah, there's a bunch of this, yeah. this gentleman with the impeccable stash. Yeah, right holding the cool. Uzi. Yeah, I worked with him. He was a good guy. Um, wow. Let's see. Let me. Um, that's one. Yeah, it's it's a picture where. You know, he's looking toward mostly toward the camera on that one, but there's one where he's looking the other way. He's looking toward his left. Um, what about some of these over on the left side of here? Well, like that one, yeah. Um, yeah, you can't really see it too good. But there's an angle in here where, yeah, I don't know what. But anyway, if you see one of these pictures right in front of him, if you go to his feet, if you could get his feet, somewhere yeah i'll I'll Um, have to look later on and see if i'm gonna yeah you'll see look for the briefcase you'll see a brief a little like a like looks like a halliburton briefcase and the lids open and that's where he deployed that's where he deployed it from um yeah anyway yeah yeah uh, there it's in there somewhere but but, yeah yeah, the other you know they had other ways of carrying it like i said they had the mission messenger bag where the strap that went over your shoulder was actually the strap for the gun and it had a breakaway you could just shed the bag and it was yeah you carry you put your hand on it you could you know you would just grip grip the grip the gun in the bag and then if anything happened all you had to do was straighten your arm out and the bag would fall away and the stock would deploy and you were good to go so you know stuff like that because where else are you going to put it yeah yeah you know you can't, you know, put it in a shoulder holster. You'd, you know, like you say, Steve, and you'd, you know, you yeah. have this big bulge on you. And of course, everybody traveling with the president, the press, and everybody else—they they know what it is. They're, they've been around, right? You know. So, well, would you would you mind yeah. telling Jim uh, just before we wrap up here? Would you mind telling Jim the story about? Um, I I always want to say it's like a parade route, but it's not. It was just uh, oh. the one in New York City. New York. Yeah. Yeah. It, just, it, um, yeah, that's one of those, um, hold your breath kind of things, but it was a presidential motorcade that was going through New York and counter snipers were set up along the route up high in buildings, you know, just keeping an eye cause you're going through canyons of buildings where there's, you know, windows on both sides could be a problem so you know they had they had counter snipers all up and down the route <clears throat> and one of the counter snipers reports he's in one building and he's looking he's you know he's got eyes on on another building and you're you know they're looking for windows that are open 
kind of hard to shoot through a closed window. Not impossible, but, you know. So he's looking at all these, you know, windows and sees some that are open. So he's kind of paying close attention to those. And as he's motorcade's approaching, but it's still a ways off. As he's watching, he sees the barrel of a rifle come out a window and it's aimed toward the direction the motorcade is going to be coming from. And then the barrel goes back in the window and he calls it in and they send NYPD and Secret Service agents into the building and the counter sniper is telling them it's, you know, this window. So it's this high and this far over and, you know. And NYPD, you know, is leading the way because they they apparently know the building a little better. Or they know how to figure out where the door is for that window, you know, in these apartments. Well, that's always hell because these goddamn places, they 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 don't mark like the 13th floor in some yes. places. You know what I mean? Yeah. Very <laughs> common. Like, God, it bites you in the ass that one time. So, you know, they're they're hustling you know, to get in the building, to get up to the right place, motorcade's getting closer, counter sniper is watching, the barrel comes out the window again, and then it goes back inside, the barrel goes back inside, and so he's calling him, you know, the guy's, you know, the guy's barrel in the window again, and he's scoping down toward, you know, the route, so it's no mystery as to what he's lining up on, mm-hmm. and you know, like I said, NYPD and the agents are, you know, getting up there. He gets the green, the sniper gets the green light. The barrel comes out again. You take him out. And so, you know, he's, he's getting ready to take the shot. The, um, the agents, NYPD, they get up there, they stack up on the door. Boom. They, they kick the door and they go in. And what they find is two rooms. One room has got mom and dad that are looking out the window, waiting for the motorcade to come by. In another room is their 12-year-old son who's watching with his dad's rifle. And he's just watching. He's watching the motorcade. He's watching for the motorcade through the scope of the rifle. Oh, man. And that was one of those where everybody involved was like, just what you did, Jim. Just like, oh. Jeez. You know, Use a different viewing apparatus next time. <laughs> his parents had no idea. His parents oh, had no man. idea. Next, you know, first thing they know is their door comes down and they're, you know, and they've got, there's, you know, they're, they're looking at, you know, six or eight armed guys putting them down on the ground. And yeah, when the dust scary. clears, it's kind of like, yeah, our son apparently was looking out the window, waiting to see the motorcade and using the scope on daddy's rifle. Oh, Damn. yeah. It's, um, it was one of those where it's like, I've, uh, I just, you know, to think that that counter sniper could have done, you know, he would have done yeah, his job, just, but it's like, Oh, you know, he's probably, yeah, and then he's got to live with that. Then the, yeah. the, all the fallout, how it like spread, it just hits all these different people. Oh yeah. And if it was a second, you know, or 30 seconds, sooner or later or something you know yeah that, that could have unraveled it yeah, yeah seconds been- seconds counted on that and fortunately the kid didn't put that gun back out the window a third time because that would yeah. been the last time and it would have been can you imagine living with that yeah you know that's um, terrible but well glad it didn't end up that way but yeah, yeah. god man yeah that's another proof positive you know store your 
proper gun storage would have nipped that right in the bud. Oh, man. No kidding. No kidding. Man. So, <laughs> on that happy note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Gosh. That's crazy. Well, crisis averted. Yeah. Crisis yeah. averted indeed. Uh Well, yeah, that was super interesting. I feel like we could just like keep on going forever, but, um, yeah, we're coming up on almost the two hour mark. So, yeah, I mean, I'm down to, to keep this going. If, if you ever wanted to come back for a third or, or however many more we do, I I mean, like I said, we got a lot of good feedback, uh, from, from the previous episode. I'm I'm sure people will be, uh, intrigued by, uh, everything we discussed this evening for sure. So I, f- yeah. I feel, I feel like there's gotta, gotta be some more meat on the bone for sure. If you're ever down to, to come back for another, Oh sure. I think me and me and Steve were kind of spitballing too, about like some other avenues, having you come on, like uh, not strictly talking about secret service or, or your, mm-hmm. uh, your life story. But I know, so beyond this though, then you like kind of like a, uh, a, a teaser of sorts is so f- beyond this point, then you transferred into uh, you became a lawyer at some point after yeah. this was your next career move from yeah. secret service. I'm one of those guys who can't figure out what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, the truth is he had a second son and I think his wife was like, you need to be home more. And he's like, fine, I'll give up my dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's all because of you, Steven. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, without getting too personal, I mean, that's that's got to be hard on the family, like traveling that much. So, I, I mean, was was that, it an easy decision at, at the end of the day or? Yeah. It, it, um, it, it, you know, Steven uh, is joking about it, but, you know, it kind of came down to, um, you know, I had two two little boys and, you know, it, it became – pretty apparent, pretty clear, you know, you can either be an agent or a dad. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't be both. You, yeah. you know, I mean, you can, I think you can kind of fool yourself to say, well, you know, it's quality time, not quantity. And, you know, if I see him six or eight days a month, you know, we'll, we'll have a great time and all that. But it's like, you know, it's nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. You know, plus I was, I was out, on a protection detail, uh, in Denver. And I'd been toying with the idea of leaving just because it, you know, who's home taking care of my family, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting out, you know, in Denver on a protection detail of Neil Bush's kids. And the way that came about was, you know, George HW, George 41 was president and he had launched some attacks on Gaddafi in Libya, if I have that right. Yeah. And the threat that surfaced was that Gaddafi knew he couldn't go after Bush. That was just too too hard. Mm-hmm. But he was going to go after his grandkids and oh, wow. thought he could, you know, he could get a gut punch in by taking out his grandkids, which probably true. You know, if you want to hurt the guy, you know, you know, don't take out his kids. I mean, that's hard, but, you know, take out his little grandkids. Yeah. And so, um, so one of his sons, 
one of uh, George's sons was Neil, who uh, had a wife and a couple of young kids that they figured these two are the highest kidnap potential Um, because they just lived in a house, you know, in a, in a suburb in De- of Denver, they weren't a gated community or anything. They just lived in a house, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they put, they put details on the kids, which is the first time I'd ever worked what they call a kitty detail. <laughs> um, what, so it was kind of interesting, but you know, I am protecting, you know, Neil Bush's kids. And I'm just kind of thinking to myself, who's home taking, who's protecting my kids? Mm-hmm. You know, my wife's home alone. I got two little ones about the age of, well, Neil Bush or Neil Bush's kids were a little bit older, but only by a year or two. And it was just kind of like, I'm not doing this. You know, as much as mm-hmm. I love it, as fun as it is, you know, as prestigious of a job that it is and, and all that, I'd rather be home with my kids going to their little league game, mm-hmm. you know, than, you know, looking out for. It's as important as it is to look out for the president's grandkids. If there's a kidnap threat, as important as that is, somebody else can do it. Right. So that's when I made the decision and tough decision. But in, like you say, Jim, at the end of the day, it really wasn't a tough decision. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's when I decided I'm going to get a different job and go to law school and at chapter wow. three. <laughs> Wow, man. So at that point you, you were like, okay, career change. And then you went, then you went to law school, like full on and like just dove headlong into it. And then, man. Yeah. Well, I got it. I got a job. Um, and, and actually was, this was, you know, this was a, a blessing because one of the guys I had worked with in secret service had retired a couple of years earlier and went to work for an insurance company as an insurance fraud investigator. And he kept telling me, man, you got to come over. It's a great job. You know, it's it's fun. You get to investigate insurance fraud where it's a whole unit of ex-cops, ex-federal agents here. You know, he kept, you know, basically saying, if you're ever going to leave Secret Service, man, come over here. Well, I called him up one day and said, guess what? I'm thinking of leaving, you know. And so he introduced me to the boss and it's a long story short, the boss hired me as an insurance fraud investigator, um, which at the time I knew next to nothing about insurance, but Mm -hmm. I knew how to investigate, you know, investigate crimes and insurance fraud's a crime. And so, you know, I'd be arsons and, you know, stuff like that. And um, I did that full time while I went to law school at night and, and to go at night, you have uh, law school is three years. If you go full-time day program, it's four years. If you go in the evening program, cause you have to, you know, you have to go one more year to pick up some extra units. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I worked full-time, went to law school at night for four years. And then, and that was, that was a grind. That was Man. a grind. How, if you don't mind me asking, how old were you in Denver when you, when the, the switch flipped when you're like, okay, course correction. Um, let me see. 34. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I went to law school when I was 34, graduated when I was 38. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because next, next year is going to be 30 years that I've 
in practicing law. Isn't that wow. amazing? Steven, your crazy. dad's old. Yeah. What's <laughs> the deal there? I was just thinking, man, I just turned 38 and you've, like Steve said, you've already lived like four of my lifetimes by the time <laughs> I've gotten to 38, like all these career changes. That's insane. Man. Yeah. Like I said, I can't figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So we can't, <laughs> we can't even talk about his black ops wet work. That's not even a yeah. official <laughs> as a mechanic. <laughs> We won't go there, sir. Yeah, but but we'll have to have you back for a part three. Maybe just kind of recap some stories from from all of it, because yeah, there's st- there's still plenty more to talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's that would that would be fine. It's I'll tell you something. What I think being an insurance fraud investigator was probably one of the funnest jobs I ever had. Just because oh, really? it was just it, it was just it was just crazy stuff. What people will do. You know, making fraudulent imagine. insurance claims. It was just, it was, it was a kick, and it was a very civilized job. I mean, I basically worked, you know, seven to five. It was a, it was a four ten job, if you can believe it. I oh, worked nice. four days, ten hours a day. So I had not only weekends off, but I had one day in the middle of the week off, which going to law school was perfect. Gave me some extra time. I wasn't on call. I didn't get called out on weekends. I didn't get called out at night. It, very, it was very civilized. Um, and I'm working with a team of guys. There was a there was FBI. There was actually, we ended up picking up another Secret Service agent while I was there. So there were the three Secret Service agents, you know, ex-coppers. I mean, it was just such a fun group. Yeah, um, I bet. Yeah, it was a great job. I bet there was a lot of cool uh, shop talk between all those different fields oh, coming yeah. together. Yeah. Cool. Cra- crazy stuff. Awesome. Yeah. I, I second that emotion that we should, we should have you back on if you're game uh, and we can just kind of do a, do a shotgun blast uh, throughout your, uh, the course of your, I mean, that's crazy. Like, so it sounds like you're pretty much on a grind from like, High, the end of high school through 38 and then you became a lawyer like just 20 years of just just doing the damn thing that's that's awesome <laughs> yeah fun fun stuff all right cool well yeah i've i've had an awesome time listening and i, I appreciate you uh again making the time tom aka we've we've dubbed you the tom father the potter familius uh of the show <laughs> um uh so yeah what we'll, like that <laughs> anyone who's listening and uh has enjoyed uh what they've heard uh looks like uh we'll have to plan on something again with tom in the future uh if you guys have any feedback or any questions maybe for the the next episode please drop us a line uh you can reach out to us uh, via email at wax at waxing or either of our socials uh instagram is at waxing the porpoise twitter is at waxing the porp um Thank you again, Tom. It's been it's been awesome just just hearing uh, all your exploits throughout the years. Uh, yeah, yes, loved having fun. you on. Been fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. What are you ever going to bring back the stash? That's the question. <laughs> you think I should? <laughs> I think so. It's pretty awesome, man. I don't know. I mean, I can't. I've never been able to grow. I, I've always been able to grow a pretty solid beard. But like I can only grow this little pencil thing, so I'm I'm always jealous of someone who can just grow one of those comb 
<laughs> cop stashes, you know. So the push Steve yeah. shared some some, and his brother I think fed him some some old school photos. Oh yeah, of you rocking yeah. the stash, and yeah, it's 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 pretty tremendous. So yeah, I think one of the world. reasons I had a mustache was because I I looked like I was twelve years old, you know, when I was. <laughs> I thought it was like you become a cop in those days in the eighties. It's like pretty much mandatory. Like, oh yeah, well there, there the was there service, was that. You gotta wear a hairnet. Yeah, <laughs> there was there was that. But you know, when it, when I was twenty two, I did. I I felt like I looked like I was twelve. You know, so it's like I got to do something to, you know, look a little old. Yeah, careful what you wish for though, because when the stash comes on, the gloves come off, and it's serious. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Cool. Well, yeah. Thanks again for joining us. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have you back on. I, I'm looking forward to it. All right, guys. Talk to you later. Any, any closing thoughts between you fellas? No. Enjoyed my time. Looking forward to the next one. And yeah, if, if anybody uh, has questions, that's a good, that's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, tr- I'll try to plumb some depths from, from uh, outside of this to see if we can get some, some some good questions some good uh some feeder lines for for the next one but uh yeah thanks for listening and take take her easy we'll see you when we see you and we will see you later